This episode is brought to you by ProMensal. We don't classify or men by where they are in their reproductive life. We don't talk about them being in erectopause when they get to erectile dysfunction, right? And But we do that with women. It's, it's still the idea that if our reproductive life is over, then that's a stage that we're at where we are of less value. Welcome to another episode of Thriving in Menopause, brought to you by Prevention Magazine. I'm Andrea Deval, editor of Prevention, and some time ago a former boss asked me what I was putting in the next issue of Prevention. I told him I was running a feature on menopause, to which he replied, Ooh, menopause? Really? It said much about his generation, for whom menopause was shrouded in unspoken fear and negative connotations, but then throughout history, menopause has been deeply misunderstood. I'm here today with author Nikki Bizant to chat about the mad, bad and frankly dangerous history of menopause. Nikki's written a best-selling book, This Changes Everything, The Honest Guide to Menopause and Perimenopause, in which she explores some of the very dishonest ways menopause has been viewed over time. Welcome, Nikki. Hi, Andrea. So nice to talk to you. Let's start with what you learned about menopause in the time of the ancient Greeks and Romans. Yeah, well, I kind of, I mean, to just give a bit of context, the book is a guide to menopause, right? So it's all about all of the things that happened to us and what to do about those. The starting point was really, I didn't know anything about menopause and I was 49 and just getting to that age where it starts to become a conversation point and things started happening to me that I didn't understand. And so I kind of wanted to understand, like, how did we get here? How did we get to this this weird situation where so many of us are getting to this age and we don't know anything about menopause. Um, so I kind of had to delve back into the history, which is which is where we get to now and where I discovered all of this kind of fascinating stuff. And I think it starts right from the early, from the very beginning of medical science, to be honest, the, the early physicians in those Greek and Roman days, as you say. Who, of course, were all men. Yes, all men. And, and for them, uh, the ideal of a human was a male form right so a male the ideal body was male and they they really viewed women as a kind of a as a deformed male body if you like or or an inferior male body so so we were um suspicious a little bit um kind of pathological because we had this unpredictable reproductive system this womb that was this um very a misunderstood thing. I mean, they didn't know anything about reproduction, really. And that we that women were ruled by this kind of volatile womb within, um, which made us deeply suspicious. And once our reproductive life ended in menopause, they didn't know, they didn't really know why that happened. They didn't understand menopause, but obviously it was the gateway to death because after menopause, women are no longer useful or viable as human beings. I mean, it's awful, right? <laughs> and completely wrong but um but that was that was the understanding and that was the understanding for centuries after that it just kept on being inherent as part of what we understood or what what society understood about menopause yeah or um, or, or misunderstanding really i mean i guess one of the things you touched on was they wondered where all the bad blood went yeah so so because we menstruate uh women were seen to be these these 
repositories of of blood, right? And so and so as long as we were menstruating, the blood was coming out, and that was all fine. That the evil in the blood was coming out as well. Oh my goodness! So once yeah, so once you stopped menstruating, then the question was, well, where does that blood go? Like, are we are we harboring are women harboring it inside their bodies, and is it kind of festering in, in this evil and suspicious way? <laughs> so yeah, so that there was a it was a real um, a deep distrust question. of yeah, and and why older women were seen with um, with that distrust and suspicion, and you know why the older woman as crone and witch and all those kinds of things, why those. Um, things came up a bit. You didn't. You, I know you spoke about the 18th and 19th century, but I imagine, as you say, the whole witch concept, medieval times, must have been a really bad time to be menopausal. Yeah, I mean that idea of the woman harboring the bad blood, and where does that blood go, and what does that do? That that persisted for centuries, and as you and and so into the into the medieval times, it didn't really menopause wasn't really treated as a disease until later until like maybe the 18th or 19th century it started to become this thing that doctors got interested in treating if you like in in very primitive ways um it's interesting. a lot of it was around the bloodletting so getting rid of the blood if the blood's not coming out where it's supposed to come out how how do we get it out and uh, and that was where we got into a lot of a lot of techniques involving the the letting of blood in other ways Oh, words fail. <laughs> I know, I know. It's fascinating, right? I mean, it is absolutely fascinating. Sorry. Also shocking because it informs a lot of the attitudes that still persist around menopause, I think. Well, the fact that they even considered it a disease says everything, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you so caught became, menopause. <laughs> yeah, a deficiency and a disease, yeah. Where did the name come from, menopause? Uh, the name comes from, it's a, oh gosh, I did have this in the start of the book. It's a, menop- it's a Latin term, I think, isn't it? From uh, men, uh, pauses and menses. So menses is obviously menstruation and pauses is um, cessation. Oh, I yeah. see, I see. Yeah. Okay. Um, so let's move on a little bit further in history um, towards times that weren't so long ago, the 18th and 19th centuries, where menopause was the, so- was the source of some bizarre myths. Well, are you referring to the bloodletting kind of thing? So we, so we had a lot of things like um, leeches and uh, bleeding, you know, where they would actually cut you and, and bleed to get rid of blood. This was a, a therapy that I guess women, when they stopped their periods, would be sent to a physician to have this treatment. Yeah, they thought that they thought that the women, women, our bodies were too hot, maybe because women were flushing and things like that. So that was possibly has some basis in actual fact. But the the idea of being hot was not good, you know, because because of course it was associated with um, sexuality and being too sexual. All of that was tied up, especially as you get into the Victorian era. <laughs> so yeah, so anything that they could do to to um, take the heat down. Was a was something that they tried as a treatment, and that I mean there was some really bizarre things there. So they did a lot of bleeding and um, kind of uh, weird treatments aimed at, at taking the heat down. If you know what I mean. So this is where women who displayed what today we consider obvious signs of menopause, they were considered hysterical or diagnosed with melancholia and sent to an asylum. Yeah, I interviewed um, Louise Foxcroft, who is a medical historian, 
And she has done actually a whole book on the history of menopause a few a few years ago. And she was fascinating to talk to because she went through the asylum records back in the um, back in the eighteen hundreds or the or the seventeen hundreds and eighteen hundreds, and she could see that a lot of the things that women were uh, admitted to asylums for were really things that we would consider today to be classic menopause symptoms, you know, low mood, anxiety, depression. But they framed it as hysteria, um, you know, basic, basically madness, this madness of older women. So, so it was, of course, not understood at all that this was that the menopause was what was causing these symptoms. And so many of the older women in asylums were actually perfectly healthy and fine. They were just going through menopause most likely. I think at that point I'm just going to pause for a a, a quick break and we'll be back. Perimenopause can actually start in your 40s. Declining estrogen production during perimenopause brings on changes to menstrual cycles and often the onset of hot flushes, night sweats, mood swings and sexual problems. Promensal Peri is specifically designed for perimenopausal women and can help relieve these common menopausal symptoms. Promensal Peri is available at leading pharmacies across Australia and offers a cost-effective treatment at under $1 a day. When things start to change, try Promensal Peri. Always read the label and follow the directions for use. And we're back. So, Nikki, some of the symptoms of menopause back in the day in the 1700s, 1800s were said to include, I love this, um, nymphomania, alcoholism, kleptomania. What was going on there? I know. I don't know really. I mean, I, it was all tied up in this, in this idea of women being a bit mad and dangerous as they age. Um, and so you can kind of see anything, anything suspicious, they were just assigned to the older woman because, because that was a symptom of her her madness and that's how they saw women past menopause yeah so so I mean they it's no surprise that they assigned all kinds of bizarre symptoms to it but then again some of that stuff you can kind of see I mean melancholia and distress these are things for sure that you know in modern parlance do still happen to us you know if you think about anxiety and depression and and low mood and, and mood swings all of those things that do happen because of hormonal change would have been happening to those women too. It's just that no one understood them as symptoms of a thing that, you know, a natural thing. So they had to lock them up. Goodness. Yeah. Basically, we don't know what to do with her. She's gone a bit mad. We'll just pop her in the asylum. Oh my goodness. (laughs) It's tragic. The Victorians who, as we know, had interesting suppressed attitudes to sexuality had some bizarre remedies. Um, Do you want to take us through some of those? I think yeah, there was electric therapy. Yeah, I mean, you can kind of see when you get into that part of medical history, there was a bit of technology coming into play. You know, they were starting to play around with electricity and shocking shock treatment. Um, they had this thing, and I have to read this because it's it's um, frictions with stimulating imbrications, which is actually another way of saying masturbation. Um, or it would have been it would have been done in a doctor's clinic and have it done to you. But basically, it was by the white coated doctor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, which sounds really sexy, doesn't it? Um, 
I mean, but that was, again, see, that was tied up with that idea of heat of, of because she was too hot, she was too sexual. So they would, they would do this to sort of relieve the heat, if you like. And then there was another form of that which involved a very early form of vibrator, believe it or not, that they plugged into a, um, like a light socket kind of a thing and used on women, which, I mean, actually probably would have been a bit of relief I don't know it might have felt quite good but might have been uh, great for their pelvic floor yeah I mean it's fairly bizarre right yeah so they did a lot of that um and then there were things around cold water treatments um again again that get taken down of the heat um so like cold baths or um, iced iced plugs in the vagina believe it or not which sounds horrendous um things like that yeah um opium as a treatment yeah yeah, I mean, we can't sort her out, so we'll drug her. Oh, this one, the filtered juice of guinea pig's ovaries. I'm sorry. Really? I know, yeah. So we can see a hint here that they were starting to get this idea of hormones in, into the thinking uh, because they they did – that was a treatment that was introduced um, with the idea of, you know, well, it's a hormonal thing. If we give her a hormone from another animal, it might um, – it might help. And that was, I mean, so that, that was probably the very earliest form of hormone therapy, if you think about it. I don't know that it was very effective. As far as I can tell, there's not a lot of evidence of um, of the effects of any of these treatments. You know, they didn't really do like proper studies in those days. They were, they were grasping towards modern science. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It was very experimental. I mean, basically, I mean, as, as Louise Foxcroft said to me, it was a free-for-all. They, were, they didn't understand menopause, so they were just throwing all kinds of things at it in terms of treatment to try and, um, to try and see what stuck. Oh, goodness. Um, there, was one, there was one particular fellow um, we never want to hear from again, Isaac Baker-Brown, um, who thankfully was later discredited and expelled from the obstetric society. Yeah, he... Um, was in the habit of performing clitoridectomies, so the removal of the clitoris, which is a horrific, I mean, it's, it's mutilation, isn't it? It's what genital did, mutilation. What did he think that was doing? Yeah, again, see, that was around that excessive heat idea, so taking down taking down the hysteria. If she, wasn't, if she didn't have the source of her heat, of her sexuality, then she wouldn't become hysterical. That's what that was. He and he was, I mean, thankfully discredited for that. But but that's that idea persisted. It's no wonder that there has remained so much fear and taboo when you look at this baggage that society's been carrying for thousands of years. And I guess we kind of think we live in modern times, but even as well as recently, I suppose, as the sixties, when HRT really took off. There was a bizarre marketing campaign um, that was a particular low point, I think, in modern medicine. Do you want to explain what happened? When you look at the ads, which I did go through and, and have a look at some of the early advertising, it's very sexist, very misogynistic. It plays on this idea of the woman being miserable, losing her youth, losing her beauty. Um, a lot of it was aimed at men, at the husband's. So there would be ads, literally there are ads saying your wife will become pleasant to live with again, you know. And the husbands like Premarin, the one of the early um, HRT medicines, there was an ad titled Husbands Too, like Primarin. And it's and it's this idea of your wife has turned into a moody shrew. Uh, but if you put her on HRT, she will be she will be restored to her lovely pre-menopausal self. So there's a lot of that going on. In the early marketing. And then in 1966, uh, yes, there was a book written 
by a guy called Robert A. Wilson, who was a gynecologist, but he really, it was a best-selling book and it was called Feminine Forever. I mean, really, can you, yeah, Feminine Forever. But he was really pushing this idea of menopause as a disease, as a deficiency, and he called it a serious, painful and crippling disease. So that idea that you could be fixed by menopause of, of this disease his main solution really was HRT. He was a huge pusher of HRT for every woman hitting menopause um, and and that, that would retain her youthful femininity basically because you can't possibly be feminine unless you are, um, you know, have got all your hormones. I love his line in there about what it would do for a woman. Her breasts and genital organs will not shrivel. She will be much more pleasant to live with and she will not become dull and unattractive. It turned out that he was actually taking money from the drug companies um, to, or one drug company in particular, to, to to do this book. And but it did the trick because it really, really ramped up sales of HRT for a long time after that. It, it was a hugely best-selling book, and it perpetuated this idea of menopause as a deficiency and HRT as the solution. And even today, there's still a lot of misogyny around menopause. Absolutely, I mean, we can see it because menopausal is still used as a derogatory term. It's still used to, to describe a whole life stage of women. As I think um, Jen Gunter pointed out in her book, we don't talk about men that way. We don't classify or men by where they are in their reproductive life. We don't talk about them being in erectopause when they get to <laughs> erectile dysfunction, right? And, but we do that with women. It's, it's still the idea that if our reproductive life is over, then that's a stage that we're at where we are of less value. It defines us. Yeah, it defines us, which is ridiculous, right? Because it doesn't define us. It's just a thing that happens to all of us, every single one of us with ovaries or who's had ovaries yes. is going to have this happen to them. Um, but it doesn't actually define the rest of our lives, which is you know a half or a third of our life past menopause. On a positive side, not all cultures have had such an unenlightened view of menopause. No, and it was really interesting to me because I had misunderstood, I think, um, before I started looking into it, I'd really misunderstood the cultural practices, the tikanga in Māori culture around menstruation and menopause uh, because, because uh, what the common understanding is or has been, at least mine was, was that menstruation was a little bit regarded as a little bit taboo to be to be hidden away, and certain things weren't allowed to be done by women when they were menstruating in Maori culture. That's what I believe. Turns out that is completely wrong, and that when we look at traditional um, tikanga around menstruation, it is actually celebrated and really really valued in Maori culture. So when a girl first started her menstruation when she when her periods first started that was a cause for celebration they would they would celebrate that they would give gifts they would um do mokokawai which is the which is the beautiful um chin tattoo you know all of these kinds of things and then all through reproductive life in traditional maori societies when a woman had her period it was a time for rest rejuvenation reflection she wouldn't have to do some of the work that she would normally do it would be it would be something that was treated as a special time um, which I mean that was then completely misinterpreted by European 
observers when they came along as as women being separated and women being shunned during menstruation. But that wasn't actually what not what was going on at all. It was the time of of um, special connection with the gods and the ancestors. So I love that idea. Great. And then, Sounds great. Yeah, we should all yeah. do that. <laughs> I know, right? And you can see it reflected in in how um, older women in Māori culture are treated. So too. once once they, their um, periods had stopped, what change then happened culturally? Yeah, so then uh, uh, older women in Māori culture are really valued. They have a lot of mana, which um, – how do I describe mana? It's um, respect, um, presence, importance. So th- they become the ones who welcome groups onto the marae. They become the senior um, figures and respected figures in, in the community. Um, and that's not something that we see in white Pakeha culture so much. And I don't, I think Australian culture would be much the same. Much, much of our Western culture is devaluing older women rather than really valuing them for their wisdom and their knowledge and their power. You know, like one of the Māori women I interviewed said to, she said in her power time now, post-menopause. Oh, I love that. I love that too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, so in researching this book and, and delving into the history, I guess for you, what were some of the surprising positive takeaways I mean, there were so many surprising things to me, right? Because this whole book was such a journey for me. I, I learned such a lot. It was two years of work and I learned so much doing it. I think the surprise, the surprising part was the whole story of HRT and how it acquired its bad reputation um, and that the legacy of that that we're still feeling now and the, and the lack of understanding of HRT. Um, I found that pretty shocking and pretty sad for, you know, really one or two generations of women who haven't had the benefit of that as a treatment if they needed it. Because Um, of the um, discredited 2002 study, which left the world thinking that taking HRT really ramped up your risk of breast cancer, the results were completely um, misrepresented. So that was really shocking to me, that, that one study uh, and one story could have such a long-lasting impact and affect so many women across the generations. It's really nice that we're starting to have these conversations now. I think it's really uh, it's great that we're starting in many countries, and you know it's it's happening at different paces around the world. But but menopause is coming out of the closet, if you like. It's so I true. think that is yes. really really good. I mean, we're having this conversation. There's your podcast. There's others. There's there's books now. There's more and more conversation is happening. So I'm really hopeful that 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 my generation, Gen X, can be the last generation to have that experience of getting here to menopause and not knowing what the hell is going on. I think the millennials coming after me, you know, should be prepared and empowered um, and should have a much better experience as a result. So that's my hope. And I think that that's, there's signs of that starting to happen now. Well, that's a great way to finish. Thank you so much for your time today, Nikki. And thanks listeners for joining us. This is the last episode in this series of Thriving in Menopause, but we'll be back in June with a fresh series, starting with a surprise, very special celebrity guest. I hope you'll join us then. 